Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I'm just delighted that I have a very special guest I want to introduce to you. We're going to have a conversation with Dr. Andrew Purvis, who is the Jean and Nancy Davis Professor of Historical Theology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. I believe this is your first time to be to Beeson. It is. And welcome. We're delighted to have you here. Now, um, as you may be able to tell as this conversation goes along, although he's been in Pittsburgh for a number of years, he's originally from another place in the world. I still am. <laughs> Scotland. From Edinburgh. So please tell us a little bit just about your own background and growing up in Scotland and uh, getting to America. Well, I didn't grow up in the faith. My mother was a lapsed Irish Catholic. My father was a barber. I went to city schools and uh, dropped out of school when I was 16. Went to train as a sort of an accountant doing night classes with the City of Edinburgh Corporation. And when I was 19, had a conversion experience completely out of the blue and decided that I had a call to ministry word and sacrament. So I had to go back to high school at 19. And then when I was 22, went up to Edinburgh University as a mature student, as they called it. I really wasn't very mature, but that's what they called us. Did an indifferent philosophy degree, nothing terribly spiffy. I was very insecure. I was from, I was from a blue-collar family, and it was this is not what I anticipated ending up. And then went up to New College to study theology, and that's when it caught fire. Somewhere around my second year, it's just, oh, wow. Studying with Tom and James Torrance, of course. And then I was given a scholarship and studied at Duke for a year after my theological training in Edinburgh. Then back to Edinburgh for my PhD, and then three months with Jürgen Moltmann in Tübingen. And I was working on him in part. And then that, that was just an amazing experience. And along the way, uh, I met an American woman who was on an international Rotary Fellowship to study anywhere in the world. She was from the College of Worcester in Ohio, picked Edinburgh. I was in my third year of my BD, as we call it there still, and um, we very quickly fell in love. We were married in 1975, now coming up 39 years, three children wow. later. Yeah. And she is a minister in the PCUSA in Pittsburgh Presbytery and a very, very fine pastor and, and, and preacher. We decided to come to the States for no particular reason other than we'd been in Scotland for four years. So why not let's go to the States and mm -hmm. who knows? And uh, I was uh, ordained by uh, Philadelphia Presbytery and received a call to the Hebron Presbyterian Church out near Pittsburgh International Airport. Was there three and a half years. Hadn't, Timothy, I hadn't a clue what I was doing. Yeah. But nobody had taught me to pray. Yeah. It was all very left brain. And I discovered that I was a pastor who had no piety. And I stumbled into Henry Nowen, yeah. who led me to Thomas Merton. And that's a long story. And after three and a half years of that ministry, uh, I was called to... Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and I've had five faculty positions. Mm. 
pastoral theology and spirituality. Then they dropped the spirituality after a while, maybe it wasn't pious enough, and just pastoral theology. Then the Hugh Thompson Kerr Professor of Pastoral Theology. Then the Professor of Reformed Theology, and now the Davis Professor of Historical Theology. So I didn't know I knew as much. So you've covered the gamut. I've covered the gamut, <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I want to take you back to Edinburgh a little bit in your studies there. First of all, you mentioned your mother was Irish Catholic by birth and upbringing. You are therefore partly Irish as well. And so talk a little bit about the Celtic uh, revival and renaissance, and does that have anything to say to Reformed theologians today? Well, let me tell you a little story first just to give you a bit of context. My mother had two or three miscarriages before I was born. They had been married there. My father was off the army uh, four years in Burma, never talked about it subsequently. Uh, we have words for that nowadays, but in these days they didn't. And I was born, I was six weeks prematurely born, and they reckoned I would die. My mo- mother gave birth and sent down to the priest, a monsignor of St. Mary's Cathedral in Edinburgh, and the second day of my life, he came to the hospital, and on the back the other side of my birth certificate in Latin, there is the statement of my baptism in extremis. And I've often thought that that's the story of my life. I once Mm. was lost, but now I'm found that constantly God is the God who interferes, (laughs) you know, to to save us. And in recent years, um, I've claimed my Irish heritage a little bit stronger than I had before and stumbled into the Celtic tradition which is full of wonder and mystery and play but also full of of trinity and great heroes of the faith a missionary church you think of the 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 great Celtic saints Bridget of Kildare Brendan the navigator um Columba, of course, uh, Patrick, the Englishman. Mm-hmm. Now all the, a lot of the hagiography, the, the lives of these saints have been translated, and we have wonderful documents from the 7th century now that we can read, mm-hmm. and the penitential traditions, uh, the care for the earth, the care for community, mm-hmm. because the monastery, not the diocese, was the center of the, the Celtic tradition, and when the the monastery was was uh, a nunnery, the abbess, like Bridget of Kildare, was the central person. And we have early pictures of uh, St. Bridget standing behind a communion table, the bishop's mitre and crook in her hand. And you don't mess with St. Bridget of Kildare. Um, <laughs> she's a fierce woman. Patrick had the sense that Ireland was the edge of the world. Mm. The Roman Empire is collapsing, the, the Rhine has frozen over, the Germanic hordes are on the loose, the world as, as it's known, civilization as it's known is coming to an end, and Patrick believes that he has been sent by God to evangelize the Celts before it's too late. Mm. So there's this passion and intensity and urgency in, in Celtic evangelism, um, that uh, as a establishment Presbyterian, we've pretty well lost. Yeah. Um, but maybe as much as anything, um, I like the play, the music, the colors, the sense of the good creation, um, the art, mm-hmm. um, the Book of Kells, which the Irish have stolen from Iona. Oh, that's maybe too harsh, but uh, it belongs back to Iona. It's in uh, Dublin now. It's in Dublin. I've seen it, yes. Um, this wonderful uh, 
sense of color and delight uh, mm. I like. In the, but there's also an awful lot of nonsense about it. I mean, did the Irish save civilization? No, I don't think so. But they did help a little bit yes. because they kept literacy. I've, I've often said there would not have been a John Knox had there not been a St. Patrick. I think that's true. Because of the mission you mentioned and the firm foundations of Trinitarian faith that uh, were developed there. And, you know, the, the Scots Confession, um, in contrast, say, to Westminster, is much more aggressively Christocentric and Christological mm-hmm. in its controlling, particularly the, the great chapter in the Scots Confession on election yeah. that prefigures Bart by yeah. half a millennium. Well, you mentioned Bart. I want to get to Bart, but uh, let's talk about the Torrances. You knew and studied with both mm-hmm. Thomas and James yes. Torrance. Yes. And for our listeners, I want you all to know that we were privileged to have Professor James Torrance here at Beeson to give our Reformation Heritage Lectures a few years before he passed away. One of the most memorable, I think, weeks we've ever had. What a great soul, great teacher, uh, wonderful theologian. Say a little bit about the Torrances and their tradition and how that impacts you. It's a great family, and I count myself very privileged to be part of the international Torrance community. The father was a missionary in China, and Tom, the older of the, the, the three brothers and two sisters, um, Tom was born in China and spent the first 12 years of his life on, in China. And Tom, in unpublished material, has written that his theology, he thinks, is a missionary theology mm-hmm. that he received from his father. They came back to Scotland. There were some troubles in China, and uh, Tom was educated in the west of Scotland, went up to Edinburgh University, studied philosophy, and then on to New College of Faculty of Divinity, where he studied with the great Scottish, much-neglected theologian, uh, Hugh Ross Mackintosh. And Torrance's love for Mackintosh is something that is being discovered in recent years. People think, well, Torrance is influenced by Karl Barth. But I found a sentence in one of Torrance's books where he said Mackintosh was more important than Barth. Mm. But I may come back to that uh, because I'm writing a book on that. Um, Anyway, um, after war service and uh, two uh, ministry in two congregations in Ailith and Beach Grove up in Aberdeen, uh, Tom was finally called to the chair early 50s of church history mm. in New College and then two years later the chair of Christian Dogmatics mm. where he served until his retirement. His younger brother James, I am told a very brilliant student uh, who was uh, again in ministry along with another younger brother David uh, who is the one brother still alive. James uh, went on to uh, become a theologian and when I was in Edinburgh the dogmatics department had Tom and James, James as the junior member of the department and Tom was known as TF and James was known as JB and you just use the initials and that's how it was. And we used to quit that it, Tom was incomprehensible to us. We, we, he was utterly incomprehensible. And James would come in the next day, and I don't know that this ever was said, but it felt like he would say, well, let me explain my brother to you. Um, <laughs> tremendous intensity in theology, pounding theology, Athanasius, Bart, Calvin, Bart. Tom was very opinionated, uh, strong, strong-willed. Fast moving, fast speaking, high energy, encyclopedic. And if you were a, a Torrance person, you got blessed and you got blessed and you got blessed. But if you tried to take him on, you got slammed and you got <laughs> slammed and you got slammed. I have to tell a story about yeah. Tom. The last time I saw Tom, 
was the summer 11 years ago. I didn't know then what I came to know six months later that I had stage three colon cancer. But so I wasn't well, but I was in Edinburgh and I called him up and I said, like to meet for you know, half an hour. He said, come round to my house tomorrow at 10 o'clock. So got round to his house. His wife, Margaret, opened the door and said, Andrew, Tom's upstairs in his study. He's waiting for you. Went upstairs. The door was ajar. I went to knock on the door and Tom heard me coming, opened the door and greeted me with the words, Andrew, how nice to see you. I pray for you every day. Now, he must have been mid-80s, 86, 87 at this point. Sit down in that chair. Sit down in that chair. Carl Bart sat in that chair. Thought, oh, wow. Well, I <laughs> sat in the chair and we chatted for a while. We had a cup of coffee, chatted some more. And then he said, let's go out for lunch. So along at the end of his street, there was a hotel and we, we had lunch. And I remember I had a chicken sandwich and a glass of wine. Remember vividly. He got up to pay for lunch and dropped a huge wad of pound notes on the bar floor. And there was the great Tom Torrance, arguably the greatest English-speaking theologian of the second half of the 20th century, on the floor in a bar in a hotel picking up pound notes. It was a great <laughs> vision. Back to his house, chatted some more, and I had to go and meet some other folks around 3 o'clock. So he said, what of my books don't you have? I said, well, I'd I don't have your book on patristic hermeneutics. The thing is two inches thick. So he pulled it off the shelves and signed it. Do you have my father's book on China missions? Well, of course not. So he pulls that off and signs it. He said, now I will pray for you. His office was L-shaped, and the, the stacks of books came out like library stacks, not against the wall, but coming out at, uh, perpendicular yeah. to the wall. Yeah. And round about four stacks of books coming off the wall, round the back, he led me by my arm, was a little pre-do, little prayer desk. And there was his Bible and a few prayer books and bits and pieces and he had me kneel put his hands on my head and prayed for me wow it's the last time i saw tom Torrance. what a blessing since come to know ian well just retired from being president of princeton seminary and uh james's son alan who's at st andrews teaches there i know well and um, I was part of the Torrance Conference for the Incarnation book, where I gave a paper. And mm -hmm. so Robert Walker, who edited the, inc the books Incarnation and Atonement, I, I know. And part, I'm part of the, I'm on the editorial board of the Torrance Theological Fellowship Journal, and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I want to ask you a little bit about James. That's a wonderful story about Tom Torrance. When James was here... Um, of course, everyone responded to his warm-hearted piety, his pastoral approach. His students just flocked to him, they, uh, and uh, they sat at his feet as though at a master's feet. Uh, the thing I remember most uh, was the big, sharp distinction he drew between contract and covenant. Oh, yes, yes. Say a little bit about that and what that meant to James and his theology. A fundamental distinction <clears throat> They put it in, in terms that would be familiar to the folks who might be listening to this. The heart of the gospel is about a personal relationship with the living God whom we address as Abba, dear Father, through our union with the Son, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. To participate relationally and ontologically, I think, but relationally in the life of the triune God. And that is God's covenant. And this comes from Bart in part, that God will not be God without God's people. That's God's promise. Mm. I will be your God. You will be my people. 
over and against the Federalist theology in Scotland that essentially saw a covenant of works as prior to a covenant of grace, and that it was it's the Western Ordo Salutis, the Western Order of Salvation, that God is essentially lawgiver, and the atonement is his to be construed largely in terms of penal atonement. Now, I argue that there's a place for that. It's part of a a messy whole. Um, But the Western tradition, particularly the Westminster tradition, in my judgment, the judgment of the Torrances, elevate that aspect of atonement to the detriment of other the, the priesthood of Christ, say, in uh, in Hebrews, or reconciliation theories elsewhere in the New Testament. There are much more reconciliation, much more relational term. So the atonement is a, you know, the church never canonized, as a, the ecumenical historical church never canonized atonement. We did Trinity, we did Christology, but atonement sort of messy, difficult, deep, deep mystery. And in some ways we lay different biblical perspectives on atonement side by side, and they don't always quite fit. And this has been a distinction between a lot of Western theology yes, and Eastern theology right, right. as well. That's right. And I know Tom Torrance was much attracted to the East, and yeah. you mentioned Athanasius. And right. And Tom, in fact, when he was, I think this was his moderatorial year, 78, maybe wrong in that, was traveling in Ethiopia and was ordained a proto-presbyter of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. I didn't know that. Ah. So go figure that <laughs> canonically. Um, Especially as the moderator of the Church of Scotland. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the idea that the, there's a place for God's law, but when law gets elevated to such an extent as it did in Scotland, when it's allied to views of limited atonement, mm. then it induces uh, a kind of a fear. Am I one of the elect? Have I fulfilled my side of the contract? And uh, this is where McLeod Campbell comes in, of course, attacking that, even if he went too far in the other direction, perhaps, could be and argued. he was a 19th century Scottish. 19th, uh, 19th century. Um, his great book, The Nature of the Atonement, 18, 1856, one of the most difficult books one would ever read, but uh, evangelical in a certain kind of a way. Mm. Passion for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah passion for our incorporation into a covenant communion with the Father, passionate about worship through the Son in the Spirit to the glory of the Father. Now, since you've been a professor of uh, spiritual formation and pastoral theology, the whole nine (laughs) yards, uh, another point that James made that's always been very impressive to me when he was with us and in his writings, it's about the intercession of Christ. And, and our prayer life, that it is Jesus Christ in heaven, the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for us and takes our prayers and offers them to the Father. Uh, what's at the core of that construal? Well, I think what's, I, I, I think this is, this may sound a little odd. I think the center, the, the, the kinetic, dynamic heart of theology of practical theology, and there's no theology that's not practical because it's, there's no knowledge of a non-acting God. The, the heart of Christian life and the heart of Christian ministry, I think, is the ascension of Jesus Christ, who sends us the Spirit to join us to his continuing ministry to the glory of the Father. Timothy, I think of it this way. Why do we usually speak of Jesus only in the past tense? If we speak of Jesus in the present tense, a living, reigning, and acting Lord, 
And then we ask, well, what is he what is he up to? What is it that we are joined to that enables us to live the life in Christ? In Christo, 164 times in Paul's letters. And this comes out of Calvin. That what, what is Jesus doing? He's doing three things. He's presenting us to the Father. He is sending us the Holy Spirit. We are the people of Pentecost. Even Presbyterians are charismatics. And he prays for us. And this to me is, this is the dynamic center of all Christian expression of worship and of ministry. Uh, that we participate in the continuing ministry to the glory of the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit for the sake of the world. In other words, in prayer, in worship, in ministry, in our ethics, we are not cast back upon ourselves. We're cast back into the arms of Jesus to bear witness to his ministry among us. So it's an amazing discovery to realize that I am not messianic. Mm. People tell me, minister types often say that they have an incarnational ministry. I will say, no, you don't. It's already been done. Yeah. Your job is how do you get in on that which has already been done, is being done, and will be completed. Yeah. And that's union with Christ. Yeah. We get through, we're joined to Jesus Christ, in Christo, in Christ. Yeah, how spiritually encouraging that is. and. You've written so many books, Andrew. I wanted to ask you particularly about one book that, whose t- a title intrigues me, The Crucifixion of Ministry, uh, Christian Faith in Turbulent Times, The Crucifixion of Ministry and the Resurrection of Ministry. What do you mean, crucifixion of ministry? I was walking with Kathy, my wife, on the beach about six years ago. It was Friday evening. Our children had scattered, gone off to wherever they go home, and we were going back to Pittsburgh the next day. And we're walking down the beach, and we're talking about going back I to teach my courses at Pittsburgh Seminary, and she to her ministry of preaching, teaching, pastoral care. And she got into a little bit of a moan. I preach and preach and preach, and nothing seems to change. I teach and teach and teach, and they don't seem to get it. The sore heads remain sore-headed and so on. And suddenly, a bolt from the blue hit me. She is realizing that she's not the Messiah. Mm. If anything's going to transform a community, a person, it is Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Mm. The mission of the Father through the Son, the power of the Spirit. And sometimes the problem is we're in the way. As if it's my ministry. And that's when the notion came to me that our ministries have to be crucified. And then I got even a little more alarmist and realized that if we don't put our ministries to death, God might put our ministries to death because we are the problem. And that little book came out of that reflection and then the resurrection of ministry that continued the conversation. And the crucifixion of ministry has sold more copies around the world than the rest of my books put together. Really? Is that right? And both the crucifixion and resurrection of ministry are now in Korean. I really do regard the crucifixion of ministry, which was an attempt to take this whole Torns theology, this whole Scottish tradition that I was so steeped in, (coughs) to take it and make it accessible, especially for mid-careers, beaten up, underpaid, overstressed, overworked, fed up pastors that's who it's written for and it's written in a conversational style without footnotes it's a little edgy 
deliberately, but trying to present an approach to ministry that's liberating. And I can only bear witness to the countless numbers of emails from, from around the world, because InterVarsity Press, they published it, and they really do get books out. The book is everywhere, and I get emails from pastors all over the world saying, thank you, it is, it's very humbling. I don't know if this is true or not, but I like to believe that that book was a special anointing, wow. that it was a gift wow. of God's choosing, and that something something happened with that book that was was a miracle. You're here at Beeson to present our preaching, our annual preaching lectures, and we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you to talk a little bit about preaching. Uh, as you see it today, what is the task of preaching? How do you teach students to preach? And what is the challenge that we face in preaching today? When we were talking privately, I mentioned to you that I've never had a course on preaching, but I like to think that content drives preaching. You cannot preach who you don't know, and that's deliberately phrased. The task of preaching is to bear witness to Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever a living Lord. And unless that burns in your belly, unless he, ha there's a great Greek word, parakaleo. Kaleo is to, to take or to hold. Parakaleo is to seize intensively. And the text in Paul where he says, we have been parakaleo, we've been seized hold of by Jesus Christ. And because we've been seized hold of by Jesus Christ, we are now seized hold of the Christian life. And it's, 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 so, so, so the preaching comes out of the fact that this daft Scotsman who doesn't know what he's talking about half the time has been seized hold of by Jesus Christ. And my job is to say, look, there he is. That's what he does. And to bear witness uh, to that. It, it means hard work with the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament too for that matter. But the, I think the task is not to preach the text. The task is to go through the text to apprehend the living God because I think, and I hope this is not heresy, that people come to church hoping not just to be encountered by a text but to be encountered by the living God. Mm. That's much more radical. And a preacher who doesn't burn with that, go, and go to social work school. Mm. Be more useful. What you've just said uh, leads me just to ask one more question, and that is the role of the Holy Spirit. What you're talking about is not a functionary no, no, kind of thing. It, it is the power of the Spirit alive. Timothy, there's hardly a week goes by in my life where I'm not dragging myself into a class. Well, I'm a chronic introvert. I'm tired all the time. And something, I can feel the switch. Something happens, and I can feel the power. I can't explain it, but preachers have to burn inside. They also, I think, this is just a theory I have, I think they've got to find their own language to say it so that it's personal, it's theirs. You can't have folks running around mimicking Andrew Purvis. They've got to find their own language, their own phraseology, their own way of doing it. But when it's personal and when it burns, you're compelled to preach. Now, this is heresy. I do sometimes wonder if we have too many preaching courses. What, you know, I, people have come through the years that I, I want to go do a PhD in preaching, I want to do a PhD in pastoral theology, and I say, don't go and do a PhD in theology. Let the content provide, shape, guide the expression and the way you do it. Preach Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended, and there is power.
But it's not your power, not my power. It's the power of God. And every time it happens, it's a miracle. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been the Reverend Dr. Andrew Purvis. He is the Gene and Nancy Davis Professor of Historical Theology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Thank you for the wonderful work you do, your commitment to the gospel, to the church of Jesus Christ. And God bless you in everything you do to honor the Lord. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.